And we are back. Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. When I went to seminary, I was trained in so many things, specifically theological things, so I could have a conversation at Starbucks like nobody's business. I could talk about theological ideas and ideals that really matter to a lot of us. But what I found was when I went into one of my first ministries, I had a pastor look at me and he said this with concern and clarity, but also compassion. He said, Raleigh, you know how to proclaim the gospel, but do you know how to demonstrate it? And to be honest, I had never been trained to actually do the work of mercy and justice, though there are over 2,000 scriptures in the entire canon that say how we are to care for others, how we are to care for those most vulnerable. But for me, I didn't really know how to do that. I preached the gospel at issues rather than demonstrating the gospel as I preached it. And so now I was in a place where I had to do something. Diana came out of rabbinical school believing that she would make the world a safer place for women. But then, as a 27-year-old rabbi, she entertained a new visitor. An older woman walked into her synagogue and said, hey, I don't know if I belong here. I'm not one of your members, but there's something going on in my life. Can you help me? And Diana, being good at what she does, said, yeah, yeah, I can. And in that moment, this woman disclosed that she was being abused by her husband. What caught Diana off guard was not that the woman was being abused. That is all too familiar in our society. What caught her off guard was that she had not been trained for that. And so today I'm joined by Rabbi Diana Gerson, the Associate Vice President at the New York Board of Rabbis. Rabbi Diana, thank you for joining me on MercyCast. Thank you. I'm so excited for this conversation. What a wonderful opportunity for us to talk about something so personal and so meaningful that I think helps. Well, it affects all of us. What the listeners may not know is that you and I have been friends for a while. We've done several events associated with the UN together. We've always kind of had each other's back in the city. And I remember when I was, oh gosh, when I was still living in New York, there was one Sunday where I really needed dating advice. My church met at Sunday night and all my friends who were pastors, they, they weren't around. And I remember calling you up and I said, hey, all the Christians are taken today. I need a rabbi's perspective. I need something. Can you meet me for coffee? And we sat on a Sunday morning and we talked and you gave me great advice. But I just remember you always being someone that I could go to. So I see this person, even you're fresh out of rabbinical training. And this person sees you as someone that they can disclose something that they're not going to tell everyone. And so tell me a little bit more about what happened in that moment when she came up to you. So this was, oh my goodness, it was so long ago. It was 2001. And I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and I arrived there as this freshly baked rabbi, right? I came straight out of the oven and straight to Atlanta. You're like, hello, everybody. <laughs> exactly right. That's it. I am here. And the first thing that happens is I go out and I meet some people. And in fact, I had witnessed three conversions that first day on the job, so to speak. And then everybody basically left town. When I say everybody, I mean, all the rabbis, all the cantors, I was alone. And they handed me a beeper and they said, well, if it goes off, answer it. So here I was. I knew the three newest Jews in town. 
And I was kind of trying to find my way. About six weeks after being in town, a woman comes into the synagogue, uh, proclaims she's not a member, but she needs to speak to the rabbi. Well, I'm the only rabbi in town at the moment. And she walks into my office and she sits down with me. And she spends the first hour crying. And she spends the second hour apologizing for burdening me because she's not a member of my congregation. And in the third hour, she starts to tell me what's happening at home. And I just sat with her. Ministry of presence is so important. Absolutely. And she didn't need me to talk. She needed me to listen. Oh, and you didn't need to fix her and you knew that. I just had to hear what was burdening her heart. And what I realized in that moment, as she starts to disclose, and some of what she shared with me was so, so cruel, how she was being treated and trying to figure out how she was going to fix her marriage. That's what she wanted. She wanted my advice on how to fix it. And I said, I don't know how to fix this but you don't deserve to be abused. And I think that was the first time she had ever heard the term connected to her story of this is abuse. This is not normal behavior. Yeah, she probably thought he's just having a bad day or she was probably making excuses for his behavior. That's often the case. that they, Because there's so much love there that we try to find a reason and attach it to why someone would perpetrate this kind of violence. He really loves me. I mean, he's not a bad guy. Absolutely. So what goes on in my head as I'm listening to her story is, I don't know who to call. I don't know where to go. I'm new in Atlanta. Who are the services? Who provides the services? Where's my Rolodex of phone numbers and resources? And I have no idea. Right. So I leave her with a box of tissues and I said, I will be right back. And I ran to the senior rabbi study where his assistant was. And I said, who do I call in this town for domestic violence? And she hands me a card, literally out of a Rolodex, if you remember what those are. And she hands me this card and I pick up the phone and I call Wendy. And Wendy was running the domestic violence program at Jewish Family And Wendy was amazing and said, have her call me. It's fine. I gave her a first name and that was it. And I said, and I need an appointment with you for next week. And I need to sit down with you so I can learn what the services are. And I provided Wendy's phone number to this woman. And I know they connected. And this particular woman eventually was able to successfully leave her relationship. And I got to see that. That journey over the course of two years, which I have to say, having done this work for my entire career, I know that I, you so rarely get to see that journey because you either see a snapshot in time when someone comes to you. And you may and, never see them again. And you may never see them again. And we know that people who come from religious communities where they're far more insular, They say that it takes between three and seven attempts for a woman to extricate herself from an abusive relationship. The more insular the community, the harder it is. And those numbers go up to seven to 14 attempts. There's so many reasons why people stay. And you can't, as that trusted individual, tell someone what to do. 
You can't be like, well, you got to leave. You can't do that. You shouldn't do that because you're taking away that individual's agency, their decision-making power. We don't want to become another perpetrator in their life. And even though we're sitting there maybe pulling our hair out inside of our hearts because we feel their pain, but we can't tell them what to do. We have to give them all of the options and support them in their decisions. So I just knew I needed training. I needed more information. And eventually I went and studied with Reverend Marie Fortune Mm. in Seattle. And that was transformative. And so Reverend Marie Fortune, tell me a little bit more. So Reverend Marie Fortune, I believe Methodist, was the founder of the Center for the Prevention of Sexual and Domestic Violence, which is based in Seattle and later became the Faith Trust Institute. Okay. And I'm sure you know Faith Trust Institute because they have so many incredible resources for clergy. And I was like, I, I need an education. I, I need training. Yeah. And that was probably a transformative experience. I flew out there. I spent time there, kind of kept Marie's number in my back pocket all these years and really took the deep dive into this space where it wasn't just about domestic violence. It was about family violence. It was about power and control. It was about yes. vulnerable populations. Yes. And all vulnerable populations. So yeah, we talk today about domestic violence. We talk about gender-based violence. We talk about intimate partner abuse. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is that inequity exists in so many relationships. And power and control can be in so many relationships, an abuse of power and control. Absolutely. And so my journey into this space has really been an incredible journey for me because I have been so blessed. I have been blessed to be able to take the pain of my own childhood Mm -hmm. because I grew up in that house. Mm -hmm. I've been able to take my experience and what I learned And to use that in a way that has been able to help give other people a space, a safe space where they can share what's burdening them, where they can share their pain. And they've blessed me with the opportunity to walk with them while they heal. It's interesting. Oftentimes when people don't know what to do, they do the first thing that comes to mind. And often... The first thing is the worst thing. It's the, I'm just going to react and it can hurt people, it can be harmful. And you're just trying to not do nothing. So you do something, but there are ways to do something, even when you don't know what to do, that can help. And I think you gave us a masterclass on that. One, you dealt with a tangible need. You gave tissues. And then you said, now I'm going to go research. Tissues and research, folks, that is a great way to deal with something when someone's hurting because you're not dismissing that something's happening. You are being present with the person and you're giving them something. That's huge. But then you said, but that's not enough. Sometimes it's really easy to stop at meeting a need. But then you realize that the presenting issue, her crying, was not her prevailing issue. So you went to figure out, okay, I need, I mean, I need triage right now. I need a number. You called and then this person is still in your office. And you go and you talk to her, you give her that information and you see over two years her come out of this. And oftentimes it's slow. And I believe you knew that and you were patient with that because your own story in 
informed what you were doing. And there are listeners right now who they've been hurt. They've experienced things that are really hard to deal with and things that still haunt them in some ways, but they have hope. And how would you encourage them as they're trying to figure out how their story, not only it doesn't disqualify them, it qualifies them, but how their story can enter into the story of others? Well, I think experience is the greatest teacher. And the reality that we have to understand what's happened to us, we have to understand our lived experience. Sometimes we have to kind of get outside of our story to actually understand and see it in its full in its full magnitude. I grew up in an abusive household and my father, you know, perpetrated in different ways against each family member. And it was really hard to kind of come to terms with I understood what my father did to my mother. I understood it. I saw it. I witnessed it. I knew it was violent. I knew it was wrong. And I know what my father did to my sister. And understanding what my father did to me was a much harder thing because you try and take it in stride and, oh, it wasn't as bad. And we kind of try and distance ourselves from sometimes our own experience because it was much easier to focus in what was so obvious in front of me. But our experience teaches us. And if we dive and delve into it in a different way, and some of that was therapeutic and some of that was, that was, that was faith. I mean, when I was a kid, you would find me often going to synagogue on my own. And if I had disappeared from my Hebrew school classroom, which was apparently quite often, Mm -hmm. I was a little obsessed with my childhood rabbi because he was so cool. (laughs) <laughs> and like, I would literally like duck out and like, you'd find me at like the brotherhood breakfast where he'd be teaching. And I'd be like sitting under a table, like listening and watching and stealing a bagel. Um, <laughs> but I would often, they would find me in the sanctuary and they would find me just sitting up on, you know, the bima, which is yeah. you know, in front of the, the ark where we keep the Torahs under the eternal light. So if you think back to the building of the Mishkan and, you know, and, in the Bible, you know, you, you know exactly kind of what I'm talking about. And so there I would be just kind of sitting there by myself. And, you know, they come in and be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm talking to God. Like, I, you know, doing that introspection, doing that, that, you know, that internal faith work that I think some of us do in a more obvious way and some of us do in a less obvious way. Right, right. And some of us do that like in only in community and some of us need to do it, you know, one-on-one, you know, with the divine. And so I would find myself there. And I found an incredible, incredible gentleman that does healing work using divine power and, and, and spirit and really alternative stuff. And it was really transformative. And this was as a child? No, No, this was in in recent years. Okay. So, I mean, a lot of therapeutic work over the years and a lot of spiritual work over the years. But I kind of felt like I was always packing and unpacking the same suitcase. Oh, wow. Like of of stuff, you know, we all carry the so-called luggage in life, right? We all have, we call it baggage. And some of us have, you know, like carry on luggage. And some of us have like steamer trunks for our transatlantic crossings. And I always felt like I was getting into a smaller suitcase 
with some of the stuff that was going on from my childhood and how I was carrying it through. And I really was looking for something different. And I did a lot of, you know, they, they do body work now and tapping and and stroking, havening. I, there's so many different modalities. Yeah, I was about now. to say a lot of different modalities for handling trauma and yeah, yeah, and addressing I, trauma. Around. And I literally, I've tried everything. Don't ever send me back to the tapping. I was like, I, I'm like, what is this? I mean, and you're doing the tapping on yourself. I mean, it's not like you go to somebody and they're tapping on you. I was like, I'm like. This is so distracting. I can't. No, no, I'm sure that has served people very well. But just thinking about it kind of makes me nervous because I'm not sure I like to be tapped on. And I don't even know if I want to tap on. I'm doing it right now. No, I don't like it. No. But it's interesting because I think we all journey and try different things. I mean, somebody, you know, somebody's going to go to the pastor. Someone's going to go to the shaman. Someone's going to go to a therapist. Someone has got to go to a yogi. Because at some point we realize that life is outside of our control, whether we want to admit it or not. And so we also realize that we can't change our situation or fix our situation necessarily by ourselves on our own. And that next step is so scary because it's that taking that step of, well, in my life, I may have not been given examples of people that I could trust. But I know the only way out of this is for me to find someone I can. And that is such a bold, heroic thing on behalf of the person who's doing it. And I think a lot of people don't see that. Like when we talk about human trafficking or things like that, you'll always hear the motif of rescuer. Like, I'm going to go rescue the girls. Well, you're not the hero, buddy. The hero is that girl, that girl who decides to trust someone when she has been given every reason to the contrary. And so when we, in our trauma, because, you know, I mean, as I've processed my own story, finding people that I could talk to and be like, hey, I don't know what to do. Sometimes that's the bravest thing you could ever say because you're admitting that you can't control anything. And that's okay. But that you also are admitting that you, at least in that moment, believe and are hoping for something different and, and it, less of the same suitcase. And it's, it's the hope. Mm-hmm. And I think hope and faith kind of come together in that way because we have to have some faith that things can change. I mean, I often say, you know, if you're born a dog, you don't die a cat. Like, I'm not going to all of a sudden turn into some other human being. That's not how this works, but we grow. And we have greater understanding. And I think we also learn how to give ourselves a little grace. We have to be kind to ourselves. And look, I can't change what happened as a child. I I can't go back and change my childhood. But how it informs and moves me in my current existence as an adult, well, I can give some of that trauma a lot less power and I can take the life lessons from it and use those in a way that is transformative. So I don't have to let go of who I am at my core. I can just take the best parts of my experience. And if I can use that to help other people, if I can use that in some unique way, because every single one of us 
has a different lens. We all see the world through our own lived experience, and we all have something to offer. And I remember once sitting in a room, and I had been asked to be there to tell my family story. And I used to tell my story a lot. And somebody raised their hand and they said, well, you know, I would normally want to share my story, but honestly, Rabbi, your story is so much more traumatic than mine that mine really doesn't matter. It doesn't have value because what you experienced was so much worse. And I said, hold on. My story is not here to diminish or negate your lived experience or your story. Your story is powerful and has value. And as a result, I stopped telling my story so often yeah, because it was less important to me to tell the story. It wasn't about my healing anymore. Right. It was about creating a safe and sacred space for others to be heard. And you recognize that because I've had this lived experience, I have understanding and it helps people to better trust me in that space. Because they know that I've walked a mile in the same circumstance to some degree. But my story is less important because I need to make space for everyone else's story. Because of your story, you're able to have empathy. Because of your story, you're able to come to this as a lived experience expert of, you know your story, you've lived it, and you can actually be really present with that person. I was very encouraged to hear how you talked about being kind to ourselves and that we can't go and time travel back and change anything. Though we ruminate a lot over things that we've experienced. And that's that imagery you said of repacking the suitcase. Because I feel like in my life, you know, it's very easy to be like, man, I wish that never happened. And it's more than regret. It'll be like you're trying yourself in a court of law over and over and over in your brain. And whatever could have happened, like you could have had an argument with someone you dated or you, whatever it was that you feel particularly bad about or you regret, you're almost replaying that over and over and over and refeeling it. And I think at some point there comes this moment where you accept it. You say, you know, I hated that that happened. I hated that I did that. I hated that that was done. But you know what? I accept that it happened. I don't have to like it, but I'm leaving it. And that takes us all different places, but or different times to do and all that. But it's like, I think for us, the scariest thing is to embrace the places we fear the most. It's to embrace those things that haunt us, that hunt us. But in order to be kind to ourselves, we have to call a spade a spade. Say, okay, this happened and I hated it. But you know what? I'm going to love me and I'm going to be kind to me and I'm not going to continue that negative self-talk, that track that's playing in my head that says, you're worthless, you don't matter, you've never mattered. What that person said about you is true. Like, regardless of what you've done or what has been done to you, it's so easy to play that track. And it's not until we change the tape. I'm using old illustrations, but it's not until we change the CD or change the track on our MP3 player or just skip to the next Spotify. I think I've hit all the generations. And I think it's not until we do that, that we can kind of give our trauma a little less power, like you said. And so tell me a little bit for someone who they're beating themselves up. What would you say to them? I would start with no one is perfect. 
no one is perfect. No one has had the experience of living a perfect life. No one comes stepped out of a Norman Rockwell painting, so to speak. So if you're looking at somebody else's life and going, but your life over there is perfect. And my, my life is so imperfect. We have to stop living our lives in comparison to others. You know, we talk about this a lot these days around social media because everybody looks perfect on Instagram. We all compare ourselves with that. And I'd like to know just if somebody would be honest without the filters and instead of taking the best photo of the thousand photos you took of you in that spot, in that outfit, doing that thing, whatever that is, post the worst photo. Not the best one. I mean, I see people standing on the side on the street and there's somebody taking photos and they've taken like a thousand and they're trying to get the very, very best, 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 best. Why? Remember the old days when you took a camera and it had film in it and you took a photo and you just hoped everybody had their eyes open. And then that was that was it. That, That was the goal. There are a lot of childhood photos that are incredibly awkward. And I think that needs to happen. But now it's like everything's going to be perfect. And you're sending a message that it's not okay to not be okay, that you have to be on all the time. And it's also the idea. And I think it's sending the message that we're supposed to be happy all the time. Mm. And, you know, we, we know that the divine is reflected in, in scripture as having all the human emotions. Like God is angry, God is sad, God is happy and joyous. God feels everything that we as human beings are supposed to feel. So if someone has that track in their head and life doesn't feel good and I don't feel good and I'm a, I'm sad and I am depressed and I can't get out of bed, that is human. Yes. That is a deeply human experience. Absolutely. And it's okay to be there. It, it is very okay to yes. be there. And that... Because shame takes over. Shame's like, well, now you're feeling bad because you're feeling bad. Exactly. <laughs> and I just ate that pint of ice cream because I feel shame about feeling bad. Oh, yeah. And, and it, it becomes this, this cycle where we just continue to beat ourselves up. Yeah, you, you're like eating more ice cream because you already ate ice cream. But because I'm eating my feelings. Yeah. And what I, what I understand is that today, young people, especially I see are so heavily, you know, like they're, they're under so much pressure, pressure amongst, you know, amongst their peers, pressure with, you know, with their friends, pressure from what they're viewing online. Like if they're not happy, they're like, oh, I'm depressed. You know, I, I need you know, I need professional intervention. I need medication. I need all this stuff because I'm feeling something I shouldn't feel because this is not normal. And I'm like, no, no, it's actually normal. It is normal to have the full spectrum of emotion. And so I want people to sit with those feelings and articulate those feelings and share them in a safe space, whether it's with their pastor, with their best friend, their sister writing in a journal, therapist, whatever it is that you need, give yourself the space because eventually what we're going to realize is that track can change. We have that power. 
And we can always change how we react to something. Even that experience, whatever it was that you did and yeah. you have to accept, yeah. you're going to learn something from that experience. So when something similar comes up later on in your life, you're not going to say, make that same mistake. You're going to do better. Will you always do the best? No. But we strive and we move and we try to reach those places. And so it, it's really, to me, it's about understanding what it means to be human. It's interesting in this conversation, and I didn't know it would go this way, and I love it because we really have a theme of leveraging your story to care for others. And when we don't feel like we're qualified because the needs of others may look different than our needs, we're able to realize that just as they're vulnerable, so are we. And so I feel like in this whole conversation, you said even when you felt like you didn't know what to do, there was that thing within you that said, but I can figure this out. And I think no matter who you are, we can help other people by being present and by figuring out the next step. This does not have to be perfect because no one is. No one's expecting perfection of you. The only person expecting perfection of you is probably you. People who are in need, oftentimes when we're in need, we just want someone there. And so Rabbi Diana, as we end our time today, what are a couple of pieces of advice that you would give to someone who really wants to think through how to help others? Well, the first thing I always tell people is a wonderful sage advice I received from Rabbi Alvin Sugarman, who was my mentor in Atlanta. And he said to me, the Talmud says, and the Talmud doesn't say this, but he, the Talmud says. Is that a move? Is that something people say that the Talmud says and they just don't expect you to look it, it up? It gives you a great gravitas. <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there's lots of these kinds of things in Jewish, you know, in Jewish teaching and kind of Jewish isms. But he said to me, he goes, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. Ooh. Always listen twice as much as you speak. And I think that is the most important thing. I don't think that's in the Talmud. I don't think it's in the Talmud, but it should be written on everyone's heart. Wow. Yes. Because if we actually listen, listening to the other, mm. the person sitting in front of us, the person sitting mm. across the hall from us, the yes. person sitting down the block from us, listening to our own heart, listening inward, then we actually will understand what's going on and what is needed from us. Because, you know, it's one of those things I always think about when I sit down with somebody and it's like I've, I'm working something through in my head and I will tell them from the jump, I'm like, I either need advice or I just need you to listen. Because sometimes you, you need an ear. You need somebody to be present and to witness what you're experiencing. I don't want you to fix it. I, mm. I don't, Raleigh, I love you. You're my, you're my buddy. I don't need you to fix what's going on. Oh, man. I, I, and I need couldn't, you. I couldn't if I tried. I wouldn't want to. But I, just, I want somebody to listen yes. and hear me. Yes. And sometimes, Raleigh, you're my buddy. I need your, your sage advice. Like, this is what's going on. Talk through your needs. So when you go and you, you present yourself to some person, either it's an individual, your dog, the divine. So good. Literally, we all, I mean, I'm sorry, but I will talk to the dog because I honestly think they are the most incredible 
creatures that God gave to us. But I want to have that conversation. And so sometimes I am looking for help in a, in a tangible way. Help me, give me advice. And sometimes I am looking for help that is simply listening. And sometimes the people that I ask for advice are the people who didn't offer it immediately. Like, like I'm not a big fan of non-consensual counsel. Like I if, love that. If someone gives me counsel and I did not ask for it, I am not a fan. Like for me, if I want someone's advice, typically I ask for it. But it's the people that listen and are there and are present. They're the people that I learned to trust. And then they are the safe people. And I love how you talked about not only listening to other people, but there's two sides of it. We should listen to our body. Where do we feel stress? Your body can be talking to you and you are ignoring it. You're like having panic attacks. And when you can have panic attacks for a lot of different reasons. I am not trying to diagnose anyone here, but I am saying sometimes when I experience anxiety, maybe my anxiety is speaking to me. So I, I have to take a step back and be like, okay, what's happening? I, I'm with you. I'm with you. But it's that. I love that you said that. Listening to yourself. And your body will tell you a lot. Yeah. Where you're feeling the pain, where you're feeling discomfort. There's usually, there's something going on your body's trying to tell you. I mean, I'm somebody who has broken you know, more toes, foot, this, that, both. It's the only part of my body that I've ever injured in that kind of a chronic way. And that ended a few, you know, a few years ago. And it was like part of the healing process. Like clearly I'm carrying trauma there. Wow. And it was so, such this like stark thing. And I had to figure out like, why my feet? It's like that, that book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's totally that book. Yeah. The body does keep the square and the workbook is totally worth it too. Just my experience. Yeah. But yeah, your body keeps the score. Like why my feet? Why? I don't know, but I figured it out and I don't, I haven't had those injuries. I'm still a klutz, but I'm not apparently, you know, causing myself physical harm anymore. It's interesting, so much of leveraging our story and allowing our story to speak to other people's stories and vice versa is centered on this idea of listening. And so, Rabbi Diana, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was an incredible time spent together. And not only have I reflected and listening to my own story here, but listening to you. And I hope our listeners also glean some pearls of wisdom and insight into themselves. If you are interested in more conversations like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. If you want bonus episodes, as well as a plethora of other resources, become a paid member at lmpg.org for $10 a month. You will get access to our bonus podcast, More Mercy, where we dive deeper. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. We want to hear from you, so you can email us at info at mercycast.com. Till next time, have mercy on yourselves and each other.